This is Trep Wire Week in Review for week ending February 10th, 2023. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Hendry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week, President Biden's State of the Union before a divided Congress got a little animated, but the international stage was a big focus early on with the downing of China's spy balloon and devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. In economic news, mostly a quiet week for data other than a rise in weekly jobless claims, so investors could parse the comments of Fed speakers after a hot January jobs report and another round of earnings calls. Manus, one thing seems certain right now, and that is that things are uncertain. Can I say they certainly are? Is that too many certainties in one segue? I don't know. I'm surprised you didn't segue with, you know, speaking about hot air and balloons. Let's throw it over to Manus. I thought that that was the natural uh, segue. But let's start on a serious note. We do have friends and coworkers that have family in Turkey. Fortunately, they are not near the devastation, but certainly our hearts go out to the people in Turkey, Syria, and the surrounding countries that were so impacted this week, the humanitarian crisis and the steps that will be taken or necessary to rebuild that area are going to be epic. Like I said, our hearts go out to those people. Uh, The big news since we last recorded, of course, was that jobs report super hot. The number came in about two and a half times the expectation, unemployment at a 54-year low, the wage growth while it was a little bit cooler than anticipated, that was tempered by the fact that the hourly work week got longer and previous month's wages were revised upwards. So what that did was uh, send bond yields really soaring over the last couple of days. In the last four trading sessions, the two-year is now up almost 40 basis points. It went from 409 to 448 in the four days since that jobs report. The 10-year not up quite as much, but still up considerably. It's up about 27 basis points from the morning of before the, uh, the jobs report came out. So a really impactful week in terms of fixed rate. In fact, Lisa Abramowitz this morning on Bloomberg was pointing out that this is the most sizable inversion we have ever seen between the two-year and the 10-year. And it reminds us that we are really talking about two markets right now that are not seeing the market the same way. On the bond side, the steepness of this inversion, the historic steepness of the inversion is telling us that the bond market is expecting a hard landing. It's expecting a recession later this year or next year. Otherwise, you can't account for the steepness of that inversion. On the equity side, when you look at the fact that Uh, Recently, the S&P 500 moved over its 200-day moving average. We've paired our losses considerably. At one point, the NASDAQ was up 16 or 18% year-to-date. The equity markets are looking at things very differently, and it's rare that you split the difference. Somebody will be right and somebody will be wrong six months from now when we look back. Who that is uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, it seems to be a continual pattern of this uncertainty, and I won't try to make any additional jokes about that. You guys covered that really well in the intro. I will give some additional insight here on the uh, the spy balloon that uh, Martha mentioned. It looks like after shooting it down, the balloon itself was 200 feet tall, carried an equipment array that was the size of a small airplane, and had the capability for collecting intelligence and communications 
China's asked for the balloon back. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Jerome Powell seems to stay on point, indicate more hikes are to come. So to your intro, Manus, depending on who you're listening to, maybe that's forming your opinion in terms of what you think the market's doing if you're a participant. But if you listen to Powell, he seems to be staying on track. Uh, the central bank's going to remain focused on monthly data and make decisions one meeting at a time. So that was something that he emphasized. He specifically mentioned that while prices and goods have improved, prices of services and housing remain high. Minneapolis Fed President uh, Neil Kashkari said the central bank has not made enough progress on inflation. Kind of an interesting anecdote here, you know, the way he's measuring that, half joking, maybe half not joking, was what he's calling the frozen lasagna. He said there's a large tray of lasagna that he used to buy, cost $16, and now it's around $21. That's his own little measuring stick of how inflation is going. While it's kind of funny, it actually probably resonates a lot with people that are struggling to pay for those groceries and other you know, commodities that have gone up significantly. Christopher Waller, another Fed governor, stressed that interest rates are likely to keep climbing, uh, might be higher for longer than some are currently expecting. And then lastly, New York Fed President John Williams said the monetary policy could turn even tighter than the central bank has anticipated. So. Definitely something to keep an eye on there. Another interesting tidbit here on the housing front, mortgage rates ticked up this week. So the average 30-year fixed rate mortgage was up to 6.12%. So we'd had a couple of weeks um, in a row where the interest rates had gone down. We started to see that tick back up. And there was an article from uh, Will Parker and Nicole Friedman at the Wall Street Journal that highlighted some of these, what they called residential power buyers. These were folks that would... Um, you know, like Ribbon, Orchard, Homelight, and others that would come in and offer to buy homes cash from the existing, you know, occupant owner, and then hope to sell them or turn them on the market uh, to somebody else. And the challenge for them is that a lot of those, you know, second buyers were not able to get financing or are not able to sell their existing home. And so they were backing out um, and couldn't, you know, get favorable financing. So these companies are left with pipelines of unsold homes that they thought they were going to be able to turn for a profit. So just more bad news. This isn't really the iBuyer, but it's something similar and uh, just another kind of failed attempt at circumventing or, you know, disrupting the home buying selling process. And we had a number of earnings calls this week. Many of the companies have beaten earnings expectations and on the whole, they're not horrible, but generally speaking, they're below normal results. And as a result of that, we saw a number of companies this week announce a round of layoffs. Yeah, I guess the two things about the earnings that strike me um, most is that by and large, we've gone through several years where earnings have exploded past estimates by sometimes double digits, um, if not double digits, then high single digits. This is the most narrow beat between surpassing estimates and estimates. I think it's 1% or 2% that we've seen in several years. So the victory laps that companies can take are a lot smaller now than they were the last couple of years. That's not unexpected. People have been saying for a while that between a slowing economy, higher wages, higher uh, input costs, that companies were going to get pinched. And I think that the fact that we're seeing a 1% beat on earnings on average uh, is evidence of that. But to your point, Martha, you know, we've been saying this for a while, just this week alone, cuts by Dell 5%, Yahoo 20%, Micron 10%, uh, Affirm 
which is a payment processor. Uh, I think they were 20% JP Morgan mortgage laying off hundreds. And we documented this in past weeks. We've, we've talked about layoffs at Amazon and Google and Facebook and other places. So at some point, that has to weigh on both the economy and on those unemployment numbers. Whether 3.4% represents a trough and, and things start heading up, who knows? But at some point, those numbers have to start catching up to you. Yeah, it's interesting. A couple of others, man, as Zoom, which was definitely kind of one of the darlings of the pandemic, turning to layoffs, the CEO announced he's going to take a 98% pay cut. They're going to lay off about 1,300 employees, which is about 15% of the workforce. And you mentioned the JP Morgan cuts. Their mortgage origination volume slumped 60% last year, which led to those cuts. And then GitLab, which is a DevOps, you know, uh, operation announced that they're going to lay off about 7% of their employee count. You know, there is some good news here. So if we want a little green shoot early, um, Visa announced that they're um, they're opening a new office in Atlanta, 1230 Peachtree Street in Midtown. And they're going to, you know, try to triple its workforce to 1,000 people in the city, even as competitors there um, locally are cutting back on staffing. So, you know, it is nice given the last couple of months merry-go-round that we're seeing somebody actually, you know, bringing additional people in and, you know, opening a new office in a location that, that still proves to have some viability based on, uh, based on Visa's activity. And we did see maybe a Hail Mary say for Bed Bath & Beyond, if you are an optimist, but still some store closures. Yeah. I mean, those store closures are getting serious in number for those that, uh, need the recap, Bed Bath & Beyond had been burning cash. Uh, they were one of several retailers over the summer referred to in Barron's as likely to run out of cash at some point. Uh, I think it was August, they announced that they were going to try to close 150 stores. They blew through that number very quickly. I think they closed 50 stores in the fall, and then another 60, and then another 90, and then this week, another 150. So we're in that 350, 400, 450 range at this point. And for quite a while, we've mentioned this before, the firm has been flirting with bankruptcy. And whether you go through the formal process of bankruptcy or not, if you're closing 400 stores and your liquidity is dried up, there's no other name for it other than a solvency crisis. And that's what we're seeing in Bed Bath & Beyond. And whether the bloodletting is over now at 400 represents, you know, the number of store closings we'll see is hard to say. On the TREP website, we do have sort of lists of all the store closings and where they impact CMBS. And it's not insignificant. There are dozens and dozens of places where a loan is backed by uh, a mall that has a Best Buy, a Petco, a Bed Bath & Beyond, a Michaels. And the Bed Bath & Beyond is the third largest tenant with 18% of the space or 20% of the space. And that will now become a, uh, a hole in the, in, the, in the shopping center. So we've been lucky uh, as an industry. We saw tons and tons of this in 2017, 18, and 19. Uh, other than pharmacies over the last two years, which have been big closers of stores, Bed Bath & Beyond is really the only one that has had this massive number of store closings in the last couple of years. Let's hope it doesn't become an epidemic. The number of stores closed is about half of their total footprint. And I just don't know what the upside is here for them. It's not, you know, at this point, they've closed so many stores. It, it just makes you wonder, 
do they even have any stores that are performing? You know, sometimes when these companies announce store closures, it's because they have some stores that are just underperforming, but you know, the other stores are still doing okay. I just don't know if Bed Bath & Beyond has any stores that are producing. And so for those retail owners that you're talking about, Manus, where maybe Bed Bath & Beyond represents that 20% of the tenant mix, having them and having all of this headline stuff, I don't think that does bodes well for the center. You know, it, it's almost better for this just to play itself out quicker, cut your losses and move on down the road. Uh, retail in a lot of major markets has been on fire. And some of these spaces could probably be backfilled relatively quickly because they're not super large anchor spaces like some of the big boxes that we've seen at shopping malls and others. These are generally in pretty good locations with good visibility and access. And I think there's probably some of these centers that would benefit from having somebody besides Bed Bath & Beyond replace them. I think the podcast is crying for Lonnie to go on to the mobile unit, drive out to one of these shopping centers and do a live broadcast from a Bed Bath & Beyond. Right. I think, you know, inquiring minds want to know what's happening on the ground in that Bed Bath and Beyond in Addison, Texas, or Richardson, or Plano, one of those Dallas uh, satellite towns. Get out there, Lonnie, you know, get that car with the trip, trip on the side, just like you used to see with, you know, Red Bull energy drinks, right? Get out there and do a live broadcast. How does that sound? I'm actually pretty confident that all three shoppers, I could convince all three shoppers to listen to the podcast there live local in, in the parking lot. <laughs> oh my so God. You could host like a Price is Right version. You could hold up a <laughs> a mattress cover and have people bidding on, you know, how much does it cost? And if they win, you know, they move on to the next round and, and they can compete for a trip set of golf balls and a trip t-shirt, you know? Oh my God. The, the possibilities are endless. Don't tempt him. He'll probably do it. <laughs> And we saw a CMBS conduit deal that had a bit of a twist. Yes, this was a twist. The twist is that all of the collateral is five-year loans. This has been something that the market tried a couple of times. I think Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan did five-year CMBS conduit deals 15 years ago, give or take 16 years ago. It didn't really take root even before the interest rate hikes that we've seen over the last year, people at Crefsey at the conferences were saying that people, issuers, should make this a product. They should offer five-year loans um, in greater um, bulk as part of their offerings. Historically, giving a little bit of background, CMBS Conduit is a 10-year fixed-rate product. In any given deal, you'll find some five-year loans, you'll find some seven-year loans, but 88, 90% of the loans will be 10-year fixed rate. And what I think happened over the last couple of years, one of our former participants on the podcast, Darren King, used to say two or three years ago that the CMBS conduit market was losing market share to CRE CLOs because people wanted shorter-term debt. They wanted to not be locked in without the ability to prepay for 10 years. And some of that market was moving over to that CRE CLO segment, even for fixed rate stabilized properties. Now, the interest rate hikes may turn that around. It may make the CRE CLO issuance less popular. So it may make sense for conduit issuers to now have a franchise which is dedicated to that five-year product. It may really appeal to people who say, interest rates are very high right now. I don't wanna lock in for 10 years, but I'm willing to lock in for five years knowing that in a couple of years I could refinance 
into something lower. So we'll see. You know, the CMBS market wants to grow its footprint and wants to pick up market share. And maybe this is a way that it happens. Yeah, I think if you look at just general hold patterns too, Manus, over the last 15 or so years, they've gotten shorter and shorter. So operators are not buying properties and holding them for 10 years. Like the idea is buy it, increase NOI, increase the value, cash out some equity, um, refinance into a new deal. So a five-year note is much more appealing in today's market just broadly than fixed rate 10-year financing that has restrictions. And so I think you know, I think this actually could give a lift to the the segment. And I think you're going to see some, you know, positive response here from the market participants that a five-year loan is is preferable to the 10-year fixed rate. And for all the reasons you mentioned, and to the interest rate is kind of an interesting wrinkle given where we're at in the cycle. But I think just long-term, most people are looking at three to five-year holds on a lot of these assets. And this, this fits in nicely there. And that story did appear in our affiliate company, Siri News. So if you want a little bit of information about that, give us a shout and we'll send you a copy of that article. And we're going to start with a property type that we don't normally start with. Our old friend and former podcast guest, Lauren Thomas, she's now at the Wall Street Journal, put out a story about public storage bids for a rival. Yeah, this is a, an interesting story. I mean, it's been playing out for a while. The headline was public storage bids, $11 billion for life storage. They've been pursuing life storage for quite some time. They put in bids in December and January for the firm. They've upped them each time. So now this is the third uh, effort to try to wrestle control of that organization. Bid is up to $11 billion now. And I'm really looking for uh, Lonnie's take on this because we've seen certain parts of the market that were darlings of the last couple of years, whether it's industrial, multifamily, um, or even tech companies, right? Zoom and Peloton and so forth, kind of hit the post Zoom wall. Here we have a situation where maybe conceptually self-storage should have hit the wall, right? More people are not living in transient places because COVID has ended. And yet here we have a situation, higher rates, maybe demand tailing off, and yet public storage just keeps upping their bid. What do you think? I think Americans have too much junk. So I, I think the self-storage, you know, kind of arrival on the scene is is more to do with people just having too much stuff than it is, you know, COVID per se. If you, you know, if, if you follow the uh, the store, self-storage guys on Twitter, um, you know, they'll sometimes post, images of what's inside some of these units that they have to sell for non-payment or whatever. And like, it's always surprising at just how someone will pay a hundred dollars a month to literally store, you know, $75 worth of stuff. And they do that for years and years. And so it's, it's been proven self-storage is actually recession proof at this point. Like it's very recession resistant people that have um, stuff in storage, just continue to pay the bill. I think there's been a lot of technology infused in the self-storage sector over the last couple of years. So they really streamlined the leasing process, cut out some of the administrative costs and overhead. So I think folks like public storage are probably doubling down. And I think, you know, in some of this case, the, the life storage properties are actually in, you know, lesser locations than what public storage, you know, typical property is. So they obviously see some opportunity there to probably increase rents 
and manage them in a way that maybe they're not being managed with the life storage uh, umbrella currently. Yeah, it was an interesting story. I, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, I'm not a self-storage guy. I was never one to watch that TV show. Do you remember that? Where they would Storage open up wars. The, the storage space and, and you I had I thought you were going to say hoarders. Oh, no, hoarders. No, <laughs> I, I don't like, uh, you know, I was never a hoarder, although my wife kind of thinks I am. But I'm, I'm not really. Um, she's a minimalist. But, you know, you'd have that TV show where they'd open up the storage locker you get to look at it for 15 minutes, they'd close it, and then you'd bid on the contents. And people were hoping that some of what they were bidding on for $700 was more than, you know, the price of uh, obtaining the, the the insides. It was, uh, Lonnie, were you one of those guys? Were you one of those guys looking to, to bid on abandoned storage units? Well, I've never done that, but I newsflash, that's fake. Like, the, it doesn't actually play out quite like that in real life. I can tell you, Back in my uh, property management days at the apartment complexes, we would have people, you know, move out and not pay rent, leave their stuff, and we'd have to auction it off. And it's never as good as it looks on TV. Um, so that's that's the reality. Words to live by. Moving on to industrial, we saw a story that signals maybe a, a pivot in the industrial sector. So we're going to kick this off with an update on the the Texas and Dallas-Fort Worth industrial marketplace. So we've talked, you know, several times over the last year or so about how DFW market has, you know, been on the leading edge of transaction activity pretty much across all property sectors. For the industrial sector, though, it looks like there's been a lot of sublease availability that's been added to the marketplace. So over the last 12 months, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Industrial sublease availability is up about 130%, uh, which, you know, could be seen as a sign of normalization of demand, uh, which has followed, you know, this unprecedented amount of activity that we've seen. So according to a report from Cushman and Wakefield, there was about 5.2 million square foot of industrial sublease space available as of the fourth quarter of 22. And, you know, more than half of that space was made up of leases of more than 100,000 square foot. So, you know, this is definitely, it sounds like some larger players in the marketplace that have decided they don't need the space. It didn't specify that this was class A or class B, but for leases that are 100,000 plus, these are probably newer constructed, you know, higher end type of buildings. So, you know, this is kind of a little bit of cold water on a market that's been really, really hot over the last several years. And I believe that story came from BizNow. Olivia's Lukenmeyer was the reporter for that. Moving on to hotels, the hotel industry in 23 is projected to surpass pre-pandemic levels of demand, room revenue, and state and local tax revenue, according to the American Hotel and Lodging Association's 2023 State of the Hotel Industry Report. So a lot of good, positive signs for that industry. I mean, that's certainly a... A wonderful report. It is of a piece. We've seen delinquency rates absolutely collapse in the space. We've seen bids on distressed assets come in substantially higher than what the appraised value of the collateral was worth. We've seen hotel loans that hadn't seen payments since April of 2020 cure. And we're not talking ones or twos. We're seeing dozens and dozens of these things come about. And so it's no surprise that the market is healing. And even in some unloved parts of the market, we're starting to see some really nice green shoots and we'll start to to get into some of those. I think this was maybe a turning point this week for the hotel market. I think that 
even though the news had been extremely positive for a long time with those points that I made before, falling delinquencies, rising values, um, a lot of the activity we had seen had been in the smaller segments of the market. You know, the types of properties that were limited service, roadside hotels selling for that 10 to $30 million level. This week, we saw some really, really big numbers. And I'll run through these green shoots um, very quickly. Uh, the first one, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, the Diplomat Beach Resort Hotel in Hollywood, Florida, sold for $835 million. That's the biggest price for a, a hotel since the beginning of COVID. The sale will include the assumption of all the debt on a 2019 single asset deal. Uh, Brookfield Property Partners was the seller of the Thousand Room Hotel. Trinity Real Estate and Credit Suisse Asset Management were the buyers. So one piece of green right there. Another one, this is in New York. This is what I'm talking about when we're talking about uh, unloved parts of the market. From the real deals, Pat Ralph, the Standard International Company is in contract to buy 60 Soho at 60 Thompson Street in Manhattan for over $1 million a key. This would be a record for Manhattan. Uh, the hotel is a boutique hotel, and the price for the 97 key hotel is above $100 million. The previous record for a similar hotel in Manhattan was the Mr. C in the seaport, seaport area, which sold for $900,000 a room just a month or two ago. Um, elsewhere in Miami, the Hilton Miami Airport sold for $118,233,000 per key. The seller was Park Hotels and Resorts. The buyer was not announced. This is a 508-room hotel, and the sale price represented a 6.2% cap to 2019 NOI, more green. This again in New York comes from Rebecca Baird Remba of Commercial Observer. Hilton Hotel and Resorts has acquired the newly opened Timeshare Hotel at 12 East 48th Street. The buyer was 54 Madison Partners. The hotel includes 161 rooms, sale price 136 million. Only one piece of crabgrass this week and this was broken by our friends at Commercial Real Estate Direct. The defunct New York Marriott Eastside Hotel at 525 Lex was sold to Varde Partners and Hawkinsway Capital for $154 million, 235K per room. This is down from $270 million in 2015. The belief is that Varde and Hawkins will convert the hotel into something else. Um, perhaps multifamily housing. Moving on to office, we have probably more stories than we can cover, but we will do our best. We'll start with a story that triggered a trading alert and Sony leasing some space. Yeah, we, we talked last week about, you know, hooking up Lonnie to an EKG for I start going through these litanies of stories. And if you thought last week was an extensive litany, you know, this week we have more stories than you could shake a stick at, as the old expression goes. So here goes. I'll start with the uh, the green shoots, and they're plentiful. And then we'll take a pause and, and and go into the crabgrass and the bamboo and mixed green and so forth. Uh, we'll start off in Los Angeles. This was a trading alert. Sony Pictures has signed a lease for 225,000 square feet at the Wilshire Courtyard. That loan has been on our radar for a long time. 
the property backs a $400 million CMBS loan. Um, the note was with the special servicer for a stretch last year. It was not extended after reaching its July 2022 maturity date. DSER had fallen to 1.05x and occupancy had been 58% at one point. Uh, this Sony Pictures lease should go a long way to changing that directory, changing that trajectory on occupancy. The property is made up of two offices totaling about a million square feet. Elsewhere in Chicago, from Danny Ecker of Crane Chicago, long firm Catton, Muchin, and Rosenman inked a new 11-year lease for 200,000 square feet at 525 West Monroe. At the same property, Chubb has recommitted to 92,000 at that location. Good news is there, the law firm Kat and Muchin is renewing for 93% of its existing space. More green, this is from Apple Insider's Andrew Orr. Apple adding 150,000 square feet of office space in Sunnyvale. Um, in St. Louis, this comes from Nathan Rebelke, Emerson Electric, which had been looking around for new headquarters. Um, their search had been nationwide. They announced that they would be staying in St. Louis. Lastly, on the green side, IRA Capital has bought a 450,000 square foot office in Irvine, California for $102 million. This is on Van Carmen Avenue. The deal works out to $230 a square foot or $90 per land square foot. It looks like this will be redeveloped. It's the co-founder of IRA Capital has said, uh, we saw this as an opportunity to reposition the property uh, for long-term use into its uh, best available application. This is from the real deal. Property size, 450,000 square feet. Yeah, so we covered a lot there quick, man. Uh, so this is a, a little bit uh, off base for us over the last couple of weeks. We started with hotel, which was really nice to see the green shoots. I know a couple of months ago, we were talking about New York hotels that were like, you know, selling for almost nothing relative to what they historically had sold for. So to see some records there, really good. The office stuff, some good stories here. I mean, the Los Angeles one, you know, LA hasn't been impacted like some of the other cities in California, but it's good to see a 225,000 square foot lease in LA. The stuff in Chicago, really great news. I mean, that's a Tishman Spire uh, building. It looks like the uh, the building's 25 stories, built in 83, 83% leased and undergoing some renovation. That's on the 204,000 square foot space. And so it's good to see positive news in the office sector for Chicago. I feel like sometimes we've been really negative on the market when we've talked about some of the sublease and the vacancy challenges they've been dealing with. So it's good to see couple of 200,000 plus square foot leases get signed in this last week. Wait, Lonnie, there's more. It's not just green shoots out there. It just never is all green. Yeah, we're going to do some mixed greens and it is not a salad. Yeah, we'll go to the mixed and we're going to have some nasty crabgrass and even some bamboo, but going to the mixed green first, Northwestern is going to move 2,000 employees from Franklin, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee back to downtown Milwaukee. It's looking for $500 million to renovate a new a downtown building that it already owns. So why is this mixed? Uh, a negative for Franklin and that town, that suburb, um, but certainly a positive for Milwaukee per se. And the fact that they're bringing 2,000 employees back to the office is a big win for being in the office. Another mixed green, this story goes out to Three Dog Night 
in Birmingham. In that particular property, law firm Baker Donaldson will be vacating Wells Fargo Tower at 420 20th Street North. The firm is the third largest tenant there with about 70,000 square feet, 14% of the space. The firm will be moving to Regions Harbert Plaza at 1901 6th Avenue, where the firm will take about 36,000 square feet. So about a 50% reduction in square footage. Tripwire readers might recall that this property once the, the Regents uh, Harbert property once backed a $91 million CMBS loan that took a $7.4 million loss in 2018 after Regions Bank vacated. Another mixed green, Bacardi USA is moving its Coral Gables offices in the process. It will be downsizing from about 230,000 square feet to 100,000 square feet. That comes from Biz Journals of uh, South Florida, Eric Bojnanski, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And that's all I got on the mixed green. Yes, let me circle back quickly to the Milwaukee Business Journal article. Um, it's great for Northwestern Mutual to move the 2,000 employees back to the city, but they are seeking city support for a $500 million renovation for the office building. So that one comes with a few strings attached in the sense that they want to bring those people back to the city, but they are definitely asking the city to help support the transition and you know, potentially provide some sort of funding for a large-scale renovation on the building itself. Yeah, that's one of those things, you know, I'm not a big fan necessarily for the government handout. You know, the, the idea of corporate welfare kind of sticks in my craw in a negative way. But I do think that selectively in some cities, and I'm not sure what the current status is of Milwaukee, what percentage of people are back in the city and how the downtown has been doing. But selectively in places where the downtown area has really struggled because of COVID, putting your chips on certain areas, if it'll sustain an area or help it rebound from occupancy loss due to COVID uh, and the impact that what that has on restaurants and bars and small businesses and so forth. Um, if, if there's going to be a, an excuse to do corporate welfare, that might be something that, that makes a little bit of sense. All right, let's pivot to the negative side and some of the stories we've seen this week, starting with Trulia. Yeah, this was a bad week for sizable sublease being put out on the market. This first one comes from Laura Waxman of the San Francisco Business Times. Uh, Trulia, which now operates as a subsidiary of Zillow, giving up two-thirds of its footprint at 535 Mission Street in San Francisco. That would total about 65 to 70,000 square feet. The property is owned by Boston Properties. In Washington, this is from the Washington Business Journal, the GSA has put out two proposals that would shrink the Commodities Futures Trading Commission and National Transportation Safety Board space considerably. The biggest loan to footnote there would be the $240 million Lafayette Center which is split across several 2017 deals. Um, we'll give this one away as a freebie. I don't want to get into all the details, but the story from Washington Business Journal talks about um, how much space the CFTC wants to give up, uh, which is more than 100,000 square feet, what they're paying now and what they're looking to pay in the future. The short answer is that they are looking to pay somewhere between 8 million and 10 million less 
on their lease there. More crabgrass. We talked about this in our TREP 180 on Monday morning, which is a new offering for our clients. It talks about the what we're looking at for the week. From Fox 5 Atlanta, Microsoft says it's halting the development of its 90-acre new hub on Atlanta's west side. It's part of a reevaluation of the company's spatial needs. Uh, the company was expected to put 15,000 employees in that new project, which was going to be called Quarry Yards. So that's kind of a, uh, a negative story for Atlanta, especially for that part of Atlanta, which has lagged the rest of the city in development. It was expected to really kickstart that neighborhood. Google announced it will be taking a $500 million hit to right-size its real estate footprint. Thus far, Google has trailed other big tech names in giving back space. We're looking closely for news for the firm offering space up for sublease. No announcements thus far. The firm has big leases in San Francisco and New York, ending in less than three years. According to the CFO, that may not be the end of it. They stated that the firm could incur more costs in the future as we further evaluate our real estate needs. So more planned reductions could be in their future. They did mention, though, I think one of their spokespersons said that much of this space is unoccupied or underutilized, and it's in the Bay Area where they've got a surplus of space. Yeah, that's a concern. They do have big swaths in New York and San Francisco backing heavily indebted offices, and those leases end fairly soon in the next two or three years. And when you look at San Francisco and the fact that Trulia and Facebook and others have given up space, and we're going to have more before this podcast is over, um, it is a real concern. And um, the only difference between Google and everybody else is everybody else has already announced. Microsoft, Facebook, Meta, uh, Amazon, all of them have previously announced. We're just waiting for Google to be the next shoe to, to drop I think we've gotten to an inflection point here where these markets, especially the Bay Area, I mean, we're now talking about it's going to take years to absorb the sublease space. I mean, we're we're past the point of maybe this is an 18, 24-month type of correction. I mean, the amount of square footage that's available, the the named tenants that are walking away from square footage, you don't find a lot of other tenants coming in and backfilling those types of leases at this scale. So, I mean, I think... We, we reported 30% or so availability rate in San Francisco, additional sublease space availability. Um, it just does not bode well for that market over the next four or five years. It's going to be really, really tough for them to dig themselves out of here. And I think what Martha was saying, you know, these were unoccupied or underutilized air, uh, leases. If they are saying there's still going to be potentially more, I think this probably starts cutting into some of their currently occupied space in other locations. And so that'll be the part where it really maybe starts to resonate that this is going to be deeper than what it appears. I mean, at this point, this is low-hanging fruit. As you mentioned, Manus, it's kind of probably already assumed based on the other announcements. But if we start seeing Alphabet being a little more aggressive in markets where they are using the space but just not maximizing it, I think it's going to be you know, something else the office market is going to have to deal with. Now, Lonnie, I know you got outbid for that coffee machine when Twitter was, you know, selling off their bric-a-brac a few weeks ago, but maybe you'll have another chance. Maybe you could bid on that Google slide that people would go down from floor to floor. Instead of walking down the stairs in the morning, you could go right down the slide into your car, kind of Fred Flintstone-like, and, and take off to the office without ever bypassing the kitchen or the, the foyer. You know, it would be interesting to hear from the listeners, like 
and some of these tech offices, those kind of, you know, trendy things that were put in as TIs, right? What's the odds of another user coming in and wanting a two-story slide in the middle of their office building? Like how, how's that going? Are they just taking those out, you know, as, as soon as they announce that they're not renewing the lease? Are they leaving that in in hopes that they're going to find someone that also wants a slide? Um, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the new office conversion, you know, half the building's office, the other half they can convert to two-story theme park. We'll have to see how that plays out. So Lonnie, you gave me a great segue into another piece of bamboo. Uh, this is bamboo is even worse than crabgrass. Crabgrass you could remove with some sweat equity or, or some, you know, uh, really leaning in bamboo. You can't ever remove. Um, this is another story from Laura Waxman of the San Francisco Business Times. She wrote that several offices in San Francisco have come up for sale that had previously been put up for sale. Uh, they were shopped two years ago. Prices were disappointing and now they're being reshopped. And how's this for two really miserable comps? 350 California was first put on the market in 2020, expecting to be sold for $250 million, $833 a square foot. Uh, the property is owned by Union Bank. It's a 22-story, 300,000 square foot Class A. Um, Union Bank is now putting it back on the market and it will uh, lease back some of the space. So the property will come with them as a tenant and the guidance is now 400 bucks a square foot, $120 million. Another one similar, this is Wells Fargo. They're trying to get rid of 550 California for now a price of 160 million, or I should say that was the price, the new asking price for the asset, which is being marketed by Eastill. 53 million. So you're talking about a two thirds reduction in the office price. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think we're starting to see the distress play out. And we had the announcement from RXR last week. Now we're seeing these buildings that were, you know, offered being, you know, brought back to market at half the price. And again, these are just asking prices. These aren't closed prices. And in both those instances, I think it's unlikely that they sell at the current list price. So it'll be very interesting to see if you know, we, we kind of hinted around that maybe the beginning of this downturn was started last week with those large-scale announcements from RXR. And I think this just kind of helps solidify that we're maybe starting to see some of the distress play out. You go for $800 a square foot to $400 a square foot is a sizable, I mean, that's an unheard of, especially in a market like San Francisco. Um, it just speaks to the overall health of that market and that asset class generally. So It'll be very interesting for us as we track these things in real time to see how quickly, if any, there's interest. If these assets sit on the market at those prices, um, you know, the decline in values are going to be significantly worse than what any of us probably had thought going into this cycle. So um, there is one story I'd like to end on, though, that's a little bit of, you know, probably not a green shoot, but it's it's trying to fight through the bamboo. Um, and this is one we've made jokes about, you know, maybe creating our own NFT, but I think the headline here actually is NFT worthy. It says ruling goes in favor of landlords and California lease dispute. That's not something you would uh, expect to see in, in the same sentence. Um, LA is, uh, California generally has been very uh, tenant protective, but in this case, BizNow reports there was uh, a case out in California where Regis had leased a sizable amount, about 78,000 square feet at a property um, by 
um, owned by Vornado, which had done an extensive renovation at a cost of about $66 million. Uh, long and short of it was Regis never took possession. Uh, Vornado sued over the default on the 15-year lease, and uh, the judge ruled in favor of the uh, the landlord in this case. And so uh, for CMBS folks, the property backs about a $1.2 billion 555 California Street campus loan. The loan itself matures in May, but does have extension options available that could push the maturity out to 2028. Um, the property actually was performing fairly well through the first nine months of 22. DSCR was at 2.12x and occupancy was steady at 93%. We don't know at this point how the settlement um, will be reported or if that will impact DSCR numbers or how the judgment generally will be accounted for. And this does back a 2021 deal, SFO 2021-555. So, you know, it's 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 interesting to see Regis, I mean, they're a national credit tenant across multiple regions in the U.S., sizable lease, enough so that Vornado took them to court, and it seems in this case that they were able to prevail. So uh, good news for, for them. Okay, programming note, we've mentioned before, we are going to be at the MBA conference just in time for Valentine's Day. Yes, you can visit Lonnie and, uh, you know, bring him a chocolate or a flower. Yeah, I'll take either. And if you if you want, we could go grab a coffee at a Bed Bath and Beyond somewhere near the uh, <laughs> the conference. I'll be down with with that if, uh, if 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 anyone else is. I have to throw this out for you guys. I am taking the stage for the first time tomorrow in Greenville, South Carolina, at a comedy club. I've never done this before. Uh, so if you're in Greenville tomorrow morning, it's uh, at the Coffee Underground, and the backstory is. They have an improv troupe there that performs every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And they bring somebody from the neighborhood up to tell stories, which they then turn into improv. So uh, I get to tell five stories tomorrow. I'm going to focus on uh, raising children and fatherhood and all the mistakes I made along the way. So if you're in the Greenville area tomorrow night and you want to uh, have a couple laughs, I will be there. Uh, making my debut once and only. There'll be no, uh, there'll be no encore after this one. I might actually go down there because I got to see this just for fun. We have a ton of shout outs, a lot of requests for the multifamily markets to watch report. Drew, Rob, Ashby, Keller, Tony, Rhett, Vincent, Tyler, Matt, and Dixon. A number of other comments. Ken M. sent us his take on national rent control. Interesting uh, comments he made. Ryan M. loves the podcast. Y'all are great. I'm guessing he's from the South or maybe Lonnie's neck of the woods. He says, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you I dance a little bit to the intro music. And I have to admit, I kind of do too. So when he's on his way to work, he uh, he does a little dance. Oliver C., great podcast, never miss it. Uh, was looking for uh, some insight into residential mortgages by term. So uh, we'll send him a note on that. Mike N., first time reaching out, long time coming, been listening for two years now and looks forward to the content every week. And Colby and David L. from Northmark sent a shout out through our very own Riley, big fans of the podcast and listen every week. If you're not a football fan, the Chiefs-Eagles Super Bowl matchup, or maybe I should call it the Kelsey Bowl, like some people are, may not be on your radar. I know the Eagles are favored, but only slightly. I think the spread is 1.5. 
Well, of course, everybody does the football boxes now, right? Either with your friends or your coworkers and so forth. And it seems like for the 11th year in a row, I've gotten the numbers eight and six. And uh, so there'll be no big party at the Clancy house when they blow that final gun at the end. I, I'm not seeing a 28-26 final score in the in our future. Yeah, I'm not really. I mean, I'm going to be at the NBA conference uh, talking real <laughs> estate. So not really going to be too focused on the Super Bowl this weekend. Well, we'll see what happens. Maybe we can get one of the quarterbacks on our uh, on our podcast. I've heard Mahomes is uh, is kind of a, a real estate maven, and he's got a decent sized portfolio. So, if you're listening, Patrick, he went to Texas Tech too. Maybe I can reach out and use some of my connections there. We can get him on. Love to have him. With that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer Haley Keene. She's got some work tonight. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send your email to podcast at trip.com. And subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening. Go Eagles and stay well. All right. Good morning, baby.